This is Ash of Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. Today on the podcast, we're taking on a subject that is timely but not new. Our guests explain how the COVID-19 pandemic highlighted a need for conversation around healthcare disparities, often associated with race and socioeconomic status in the U.S. As our guests explain, the magnitude of these disparities is severe, affecting everything from finances to healthcare outcomes. They share what clinicians can do and the role implicit bias plays in perpetuating these inequities. Plus, we hear the story of one SLP's work with a secret service agent and how what she learned from the experience changed her career. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is Asha Voices. Support for Asha Voices comes from the Hannon Center. Are you looking for ways to offer effective family-centered intervention online? The Hannon Center helps you reach more families using a research-based approach that offers individualized early language intervention via telepractice. Visit hannon.org telepractice. Today, we'll be joined by three guests from Georgetown University Medical Center's Cognitive Recovery Lab, postdoctoral fellow and SLP, Dave Trina Celeste Gadsen. The research Celeste conducts looks specifically at the connection between healthcare disparities and aphasia. Also, we're joined by Chair for the Department of Health Systems Administration and an Associate Professor at Georgetown University, Christopher King and an assistant professor at Georgetown University and former scientific director for health equity research for the MedStar Health Research Institute, Delia Wesley, who will be co-leading a pre-convention workshop with Christopher King in Washington, D.C., a subject you'll hear more about later in this episode. To begin our conversation, I asked Christopher if he could give us a brief overview of what disparities are and how they might present themselves. A disparity is simply a measurable difference in the incidence, the prevalence of a disease or condition, right? And typically you will see a disparity when you see populations that have different types of resources or or some that don't have the same level of resources. So when you have one population that has more resources, high quality education, a resource is access to jobs with livable wages, access to affordable, healthy foods. So when you have one population that has that and another population that doesn't, you will see disparities. You will see differences in health outcomes across those two populations, right? And that's what equity is. It's like, how do we adjust resources to balance this thing out? And so if we apply an equity lens, we are adjusting resources according to need. Health disparities are big in this country. I mean, we're spending approximately 18% of our GDP uh, in health, healthcare, and that's almost two times higher than other industrialized countries per capita. And these disparities are key drivers. So this is a really important issue that everyone needs to recognize because, you know, the country will not thrive if we are not healthy. What I'm hearing you say is even though 18% of the GDP is going towards healthcare because of these racial disparities, that money may not be showing the same effects as what one might imagine. Right. We're actually rendering sick care in this country. We're not focusing on prevention like other peer countries, you know, investing in early childhood education, making sure that everyone has access to safe and affordable housing. Uh, when we do that, we will see uh, we'll see a difference, and some of that spending will will go down. But until we do that, we will continue to provide sick care, and we haven't even broached the issue of the racial 
component and systemic racism as a key driver for why we're seeing these differences in health outcomes. We're going to talk more about that in just a second. Celeste, since you are an SLP, I was hoping you could give us a, a similar a brief overview of where we see racial disparities and other healthcare disparities in the CSD professions. Definitely. And so one of the things that I, I point a lot of people to just off of what we see um, in practitioner makeup is the disparity related to diverse practitioners. African-Americans make up about 3% of SLPs within the CSD field. And so taking that into account, in addition to understanding that people with aphasia most often resulting from a stroke, uh, these individuals are also experiencing disparities initially related to the stroke, but now we're starting to have better insight into what those disparities may look like regarding assessments, regarding recovery, and most importantly, regarding the treatment that uh, practitioners are providing. Mm -hmm. Delia, you and Christopher wrote an article together for the Georgetown Journal of International Affairs uh, in December of 2020. The article is called Reconceptualizing Race and Healthcare in the Wake of COVID-19. What is the pandemic teaching us about racial disparities in healthcare. In the beginning of the pandemic, there were a lot of people, you know, approaching myself, Christopher, other disparities researchers, equity researchers, sort of, you know, scratching their heads and, oh my gosh, what's happening? What's going on? When we started to see the race-ethnicity breakdown of cases and mortalities, you know, and to those of us who've been in this field for, you know, the last couple of decades, what we were seeing with the pandemic was what we've been seeing with every other health outcome in this country, right? It's you're seeing differences that are closely linked to social status, to economic status, to environmental status, environmental disadvantage. So it's the same thing that we've been seeing when you look at other chronic conditions because they're closely aligned to adverse effects for groups of people who've systematically experienced greater obstacles to attaining health status or optimal health status. And so more sort of in your face with the pandemic was the racial or ethnic group differences. But we also see these differences along, you know, religious lines or um, gender, age, you know, mental health, all of those different dynamics, which really tie back to systemic differences in access and opportunity. And so that's really what we were highlighting in that article. And part of that linked to how race is not and, and often has been misconstrued as a biological variable, right? So when we first started really talking about health disparities in the last couple decades, there is this tendency to sort of, you know, look at the data, look at your outcomes, stratify by race, and you see an, a difference between black and white, for instance, or white and Asian. But really, when you get down to the root cause of it and what's actually driving those differences, especially knowing, again, that race is not a biological variable. It's actually a social construct. Our healthcare system is sort of a, a very discrete and concrete example of where there are systems and structures that are in place that ensure that there are disadvantages to certain groups and populations because it's how the systems were um, designed. So these systems were not designed to benefit everybody equally. And as Christopher mentioned, that when we apply an equity lens, it forces you to peel back the layers, you know, in the pandemic very much presented a situation where we could no longer deny that there are systems and structures in place that make certain groups more vulnerable. And if I'm interpreting the article correctly, you're saying it's not an issue that only affects 
black Americans or people of color. You're saying health economists estimate disparities contribute to nearly $93 billion in excess medical care costs and $42 billion in lost productivity annually. Uh, it goes on to say black Americans have the highest death rate and the shortest survival rate for cancer, uh, three times as likely to experience kidney failure as white people. There's a lot of ways this is playing out. Absolutely. What we have to do as a country, as a society, is rethink how we are operationalizing race when it comes to capturing, because it's important, we still need to capture data by race and ethnicity. I think there's a lot that we can learn from that, but we have to exercise caution with what we do with that information because people's differences in health outcomes, it's not because they're biologically different. The Human Genome Project confirmed this for us, right? It's not because we're biologically different, it's because of our lived experiences our narratives, exposure to discrimination, different forms of bias and systemic racism and living in communities that just have been left behind. You know, you're going to see that play out in health outcomes. And again, I can't say this enough, everyone will be impacted. So if you have a community in your surrounding wherever your jurisdiction that has high rates of COVID, you know, People travel, people move around, and these probably will be the same people that deliver your groceries, or they may be the same people who work at the post office. And so we, we come in contact with each other. So we can't just think, oh, well, that's a problem for that neighborhood. It's a public health issue. We've been saying this for a long time, but I think the general public is now recognizing that this is a public health issue, and we're all in this together, and we all need to think about uh, you know, our own spheres of influence to make a difference. Dylan mentioned there are many other places that racial disparities have existed for a very long time. And I wanted to know what it was about the pandemic that resulted in this focus. I wondered if it was the protest during the summer of 2020 over the murder of George Floyd and other black Americans that led people to look at this with more focus. And I asked our guests how the pandemic contributed to bringing attention to this subject. I think the pandemic, what we saw was, you know, for lack of a better word, the perfect storm, right? We are in a time where we were seeing, seeing, not that it was happening for the first time, but we are seeing, thanks to cell phones and people's personal, you know, devices where they could record this, we're finally now seeing it in public, the execution of black and brown males and females, right? Like you can no longer hide from it. Where at the same time, yes, there was a disproportionate impact on infections and mortality uh, by race, ethnicity. However, the pandemic, this this problem finally, it was impacting everyone, right? We're all shut down. We're all stuck at home. Jobs are being lost, right? While it disproportionately impacted certain groups, it actually did still impact everyone. Companies, businesses, people are losing money. So for the first time, these health disparities are actually playing out in a way that they, they do impact everybody. And so we've also now got sort of a heightened political, you know, environment at the time with everything that was going on. We've got as I mentioned, the, the murders are, are coming out in plain form. You couldn't look away this time. And, and that's part of what pushed everything to the forefront. And then it was really, really hard to ignore how blatant the disparities were in terms of, you know, who is it that wasn't able to stay at home to avoid being exposed and infected? And it was systematically the same people, right? Who was it who was losing their jobs at disproportionately greater 
levels, right? Service workers, it was frontline workers, people who didn't have the options to sort of sit back from the comfort of their homes. And so for the first time, I think in the history of this nation, you've got these health disparities that are playing out, but they did in some way, shape or form impact every single one of us. Christopher, Celeste, anyone want to uh, jump in? Just to piggyback off of what Delia was saying, I definitely agree. And I think that related to the CSD profession, I think it was a reality check for all professions, all corporations, all organizations to really get serious with themselves and say, okay, what are we doing? Are we addressing these issues? And what can we do to make sure that we're not only supporting our employees or our members, but also the people that we serve? I call it a trifecta of this convergence of temporal events. Delia touched on the political environment, right? We had an administration that really removed the scab and exposed the realness of of racism in this country and that we're not out of the woods. I mean, we have a long way to go. We had COVID, that's the second. And then we had the killings over the summer that led to all of the different movements across the country. So these three events to me really have amplified the conversations and communities all across the country are grappling and coming to terms with this. And my work has been helping leaders of organizations on next steps. Where do we go from here, right? It's not easy. It's a heavy lift. And, um, you know, we know that folks want to do something, but how do you move the needle? And that's the work that needs to be done. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Celeste tells us the story of a Secret Service agent who changes how she thinks about her career. Support for Asha Voices comes from the Hannon Center. The Hannon Center's evidence-based approach is now more accessible than ever. Hannon members have the option to lead Hannon programs for groups of parents via telepractice, as well as to offer parent training in one-on-one virtual sessions. By enabling families to receive high-quality support from the comfort of their homes, you're breaking down barriers and increasing families' access to the intervention they need. Visit hannon.org slash telepractice. I asked Celeste to tell us about her research and why she chose to focus on aphasia, beginning with a quick definition of aphasia. Yeah, definitely. So aphasia is the loss of language due to damage to the left hemisphere of the brain and not a loss of intellect, uh, but these individuals have difficulty communicating, reading, writing. And one of the reasons why I got interested in this work, I was working at National Rehab Hospital here in D.C. And within this space, it was one of the first settings to where the socioeconomic status of the individuals uh, was expansive. And so in addition to the monetary piece, individuals were younger. And based off of the research that I was seeing prior in the literature, it really focused on either activities that weren't functional but or things that weren't really tailored to helping African-Americans and individuals get back to life. And so I started to do a lot of research and really working with Delia as my mentor and really trying to understand that these health disparities are here. And so not only are these health disparities here, but now these individuals with aphasia have to navigate trying to understand their healthcare course. And as speech language pathologists, I wasn't really clear on what we were doing to support them. Were we looking at what we wanted them to get better with or were we helping them frame 
thoughts and uh, scripts in order to be able to communicate with their physicians? Were we helping them be able to understand their medication, helping them be able to mitigate some of these disparities that they're faced with based off of their living arrangement. And when I went back to our scope of practice and looked at service delivery domains and looked at population systems, understanding that as speech language pathologists, we have a role to improve overall health and education in these individuals. We have a role and responsibility to reduce the cost of care. We have a role to make sure that we are supporting these individuals through case management. We're supporting these individuals through reaching their goals. And I just saw a huge gap in that and knew that not only the research was was needed, but I also needed to partner with other experts in the field that can help guide me in this area as well. This is a person-centered approach. I know you have a story about a former Secret Service agent. A version of this story appears in the September issue of the Asher Leader magazine. Could you tell us about the Secret Service agent that you worked with and how they informed your career trajectory? Oh, definitely. So he was absolutely amazing. And he was a Secret Service agent to a high-ranking official. He was a younger man in his 40s, and he had suffered this debilitating stroke, very supportive family. And initially, I could tell that there was some depression there, that there was some sadness there. I could tell that he had some sadness associated with the loss of language. He was what we would call global aphasic. And so he had little to no speech at all. He had right hemiparesis meaning that the right side of his body was also paralyzed and he was in a wheelchair. And so I began to get to know him and I did that asking him questions as much as I can using yes, no responses, tapping into what I knew as a practitioner, but also allowing some of that clinician rapport and personality to come out. And so I wanted to know about as much as he could share with me about his work as a secret service agent. And that included bringing in pictures, that included listening to songs, asking his family, getting involved. Um, So we weren't able to complete all of therapy, but he really changed my trajectory of my career and understanding that health-related quality of life outcomes is very important. I knew what he wanted to do because I asked him. And the only way that I was able to, to ask him is using some of these outcome measures to get the patient perspective of what they want to do in therapy and how I can assist them. In the article, you're quoted as saying, I got to thinking, this goes beyond loss of words. We were dealing with the loss of his identity. Oh, yeah. The thing about it that was so awesome, you know, I'm from Georgia. And so it's a carry state. And so, you know, I remember his family bringing in pictures of him in his whole secret service gear and protecting the highest uh, ranking official. And I started talking to him about the type of gun that he had. And even in that space, that was a spark for him being able to communicate. And, you know, I asked him questions, you know, I wanted to know, but really tapping into something that made him feel like that protector that he so identified with. I understand from the article, he had a big effect on your career and your area of study. What happened next? I I really started to realize that there wasn't research in the area. And so I remember talking to one of my mentors at the time and just, you know, really wanting to understand where is this research? What can I do? How do I know what to do with these individuals to get them back to life? And he said to me, go get your PhD and you do the research. And so, yeah, I went back and really had to advocate for this line of research. And when I say this line of research, I'm not only speaking of in the African 
African-American community, but I'm speaking of the quality of life piece and understanding that as practitioners, we have to move from a space of diagnostics only where we're looking at clinician reported outcomes to assess the impairments related to aphasia, but moving to a space to where we're asking these individuals is even more important with African-Americans because of the additional personal and environmental contextual factors that they face that we are asking these individuals using health reported outcomes. You mentioned that you and Delia work together. Can you talk a little bit about that? How did you two meet? I am, like you mentioned, in the Cognitive Recovery Lab with Dr. Uh, Peter Turkletop, who's absolutely phenomenal. And I shared with him, even when I interviewed for the position and he saw my dissertation research and he asked me what I wanted to do and uh, why being in this D.C. area was so important, I shared with him my desire to do health disparity research and that the D.C. area was so important because it's one of the few areas where you see a span socioeconomic status. And so we're able to see um, African-Americans recovery at various different stages. And he, you know, honestly said to me, we need to find you a health disparities collaborator because this is an area that I am not submerged in. I can help you with all of the neurology stuff and the aphasia stuff, but with your your focus on health disparities, let's find you a health disparities collaborator. And then next thing I know, he did some emailing and sent me the name of Delia and I stalked her and looked at all of her stuff and was like, oh my gosh, she's doing absolutely everything that I want to learn how to do, everything that I think would complement my knowledge and skill set already as a speech language pathologist. So Celeste was sent to me through a one of my mentors at Georgetown MedStar. In my role as a disparities researcher, I've always said, you know, as a health equity scientist, you know, the work that I do is disease agnostic, right? Because these disparities that we're talking about, oftentimes the drivers are the same and you see disparities across pretty much any clinical context that you can, if you've got data and you can dig into it, you'll find it. Celeste being connected with me, it was no different to, you know, the neurologists that I collaborate with or the rheumatologists that I collaborate with. I was excited about the opportunity to learn about a new space. I'd never met a speech language pathologist in a research space. And so I was just really intrigued by by her interests and, and her expertise. And I saw it as an opportunity once we did a quick search of the literature and a quick sort of trying to understand what's even known about, you know, health inequities in this space, there was surprisingly very little that's published. Well, I say surprisingly, but not surprisingly. But what I saw is a true opportunity for some much needed work. And that really sparked, you know, a fire between the two of us, but certainly brings me back to the fact that this work is so needed and the time is really now in this this domain. And so I'm just really excited that, you know, her work's getting the attention that it is and that there is within this community the awakening and the attention and, and, and the drive to actually need to start to do the, the deep work within this space. Celeste, the story that you shared is a perfect example of the direction that we have to go in. I talk about in this country, we do a really good job providing medical care, but we haven't cracked the code on health care. Because health care means that I am recognizing you and all parts of you if I'm going to help you with whatever your condition is, right? And so taking time to sit down with patients and asking questions so you understand, you know, what's the bright light in their lives and making those connections is what we have to achieve 
if we're going to make a difference in people's lives and improve the health of, of communities that we're serving. This is the work we're doing at Georgetown. We're, we're talking about and going through exercises around humility, right? Yeah, we have all this, these degrees in education, but for me, the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know. Right. And so so being humble and making ourselves vulnerable. Right. And listening to patients and understanding what it is that's keeping them up at night is part of the work that needs to be done. We're talking about large systemic issues with a long history. But now you're you're giving a little insight about what can be done at an individual level, at an individual level and at a systems level. Right. Do we have systems and payment models that are designed to enforce that type of interaction with patients. And I would argue that we're not there yet. You know, we're still, you know, where's the money going, right? People's behavior will change, you know, behavioral economics, right? People's behavior will change based on the incentives. And so we just don't have the, the incentives right now. I mean, there's some unique models in different parts of the country, but until we're trained differently with a focus on healthcare not just medical or the biology or the physiological aspects of the work that we're doing, but really creating systems and processes that allow us to make sure patients' needs are met beyond the medication. Christopher and Delia will be co-leading a pre-convention workshop focused on confronting implicit bias in healthcare. Sponsored by the District of Columbia Speech-Language Hearing Association, the workshop is being held in Washington, D.C. on Wednesday, November 17th. In advance of that, I asked them what clinicians can do to address biases. To be human is to have implicit bias, and it's understanding that all of our backgrounds, our upbringings, every all of our lived experience shapes our biases, these sort of unconscious associations that we make about groups of people are oftentimes what lead to us making harmful decisions in a clinical context, missing diagnoses, for instance, missing, you know, opportunities to intervene in a way that improves somebody's outcomes. And there's bodies of literature that show proven techniques to mitigate biases. But I'd say the number one thing is being simply aware that as a human being, you have biases. And so for clinicians, for practitioners, for all of us, the first thing is understanding and being aware that we come to the table with these biases. And then there's a whole slew of other sort of strategies and de-biasing mitigation strategies that are going to be very much the focus of the workshop. I think what we all have to recognize is that we are living in a society that is just riddled with all kinds of injustice. And we start to see that just as soon as we're born. And we take all of these messages in. This is all of us. This is not a black, white. No, this is a human experience, right? And so these messages are always coming to us in the media, in our, you know, what people say, institutional norms. It just comes at us in all these different uh, formats. And we don't realize that we have a bias. So the first step is, again, awareness and recognizing that it's real and that you're not a bad person. I truly believe most people come to work with the intent to do the right thing. But we are operating in an ecosystem that has not been designed for everyone to have the same outcome. Because of that, we can make decisions and we can be very vulnerable in making decisions that aren't fair to people, that are unequal to people. 
and we perpetuate the problem. We see disparities exacerbated, right? We know that unequal treatment within healthcare institutions is typically caused by an implicit bias. And so it's a real, real thing. It needs to be addressed. We need to create systems that recognize that bias is real and and have layers of interventions so that we don't have that Swiss cheese. You just have the patient go through, there's a hole, and then the patient ends up with a really bad outcome. We need to have different layers to protect that patient so that that patient is not receiving a care that is solely driven by bias, whether it's a person or the institution that created it. And then mindfulness, just being mindful is one way to get around it. Because we talk about cultural competence and I'm just like, we can't understand everything about everybody's culture. (laughs) You just can't do it. The best way that we can connect with patients is exactly what Celeste shared in her story. Sit down and listen, right? Sit down and listen and ask questions and be curious and let that patient see that this is a very authentic exchange. That is one of the best ways we can get around bias. You can attend the workshop, co-led by Christopher and Delia. Find registration information online at on.asha.org slash preconventionworkshop2021. Christopher also recommended taking an implicit association test to learn more about the biases you may hold. And he says you can assess your biases and pair this with exposure to cultures you may not have been exposed to. What can you do right now to mitigate some of those biases? Celeste recommends visiting museums and historical spaces, reading books on racism, volunteering in black communities or with public service initiatives. And Christopher wanted to add one more point. And I just want to add, it also just makes for a better lived experience because you're enlightened and it helps you make sense of the world and better manage expectations when they're not met. It's a win-win. Thank you all for this conversation today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Daddy. Thanks, everyone. I want to send a special thank you to SLP Therese Grimet for her help with this episode. She's president of the District of Columbia Speech Language Hearing Association, and she organized the pre-convention workshops. Find more information on the November 17th workshops at on.asha.org slash preconventionworkshop2021. And read more about Delia Wesley and Celeste Gadsden in the September issue of the ASHA Leader magazine. You can learn more about the research Celeste is conducting and learn more about the Secret Service agent who affected her career. That's in the pages of the ASHA Leader magazine or online at leader.pubs.asha.org. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the Hannon Center, break down barriers, and reach more families with the Hannon Center's high-quality, family-centered telepractice programs. Learn more about becoming Hannon certified at hannon.org telepractice. Production assistance for ASHA Voices comes from Pamela Lawrence. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. <laughs>